Hey, if you like the show, can I ask you to take five minutes and leave a review on iTunes? More than anything else you can do, this will really help get these stories in front of more people. If online reviews aren't your thing, maybe just tell a friend or two that there's this quirky new podcast that they should check out. Good times, everyone. This is Season 1, Episode 10, Cut to the Chase. Hey everybody, this is Pete again in almost real time. Today's show is the 10th episode of Season 1, which I had originally planned to be 10 episodes long. So from the get-go, this was going to be the last episode. Although I can now confirm that there will be one bonus episode for Season 1, which will come out sometime during Christmas week. And then I'm going to be taking a break of three or four weeks while I'm working on some things for a possible Season 2. I've got a couple of things in progress, a few things that need to be developed a little further. Uh, But if there is going to be a Season 2, I would imagine it wouldn't start until late January or early February. And the best way to be notified about both the bonus episode and when Season 2 starts is by subscribing to my newsletter. You can go to PeteBrownSays.com, click Newsletter, and subscribe right there. You don't get spammed. I write to you about once a week or once every two weeks. Newsletter subscribers are the ones always notified first when an episode comes out. And finally, I was looking over the the show's metrics today, and I realized we're pretty close to going over 2,000 downloads, which is far and away above my expectations. When I started this podcast, I realized there was a legitimate chance of having, you know, 10 total listeners. So I'm excited to be approaching 2,000, uh, but it's going to be a bit of a stretch to get there. So can I just ask if you've been meaning to to mention the podcast to friends or or maybe you, you've been meaning to text a link to one of the shows to one of your friends who you think would like it? Let's try and do that this week. You know, the one thing that I'm learning about podcasts is they grow and spread primarily through word of mouth. The The 10 episodes in season one are not time-sensitive episodes, too, so... So I'm hoping people will continue to find an episode and really like it and check out the other ones as well. And the numbers will keep growing. All right, that's all for me in almost real time. I'm going to hand off now to Recorded Me for the rest of the show. Happy holidays, everyone. And as always, good times. My daughter is in middle school as I write this, and she works as a writer on her school's daily video news show, which features other middle schoolers reading the announcements on camera. Now, her job, as far as I can tell, is to get the announcements and load them into the teleprompter. I'd like to think she gets an opportunity to make an edit pass on them, you know, some actual writing work, but I suspect that between the 20 minutes she has each morning to do her job and my completely unfounded gut-level suspicion that middle school teachers find the idea of an 8th grader editing their words unsavory that she is more or less a final check and pass-through to these words going on the air. There's one teacher in particular whose announcement she dreads, a teacher who is nearing retirement and whose morning announcements, my daughter says, come from the past. When I ask her what that means, she tries to explain it to me, but then she gets a little frustrated and just says, I don't know, Dad. She's just old. 
I'm willing to bet that most of you, if you think back through your educational years, likely somewhere in the elementary area, that sooner or later you had the teacher who should have retired already teacher. And if you do remember such a teacher, I will further speculate, again, I'm just gut-level guessing here, that this teacher who should have retired teacher plays a pretty large role in your personal cadre of crazy teacher stories. Am I right? Over on PeteBrownSays.com, there's a submit page, and I got a lot of good submissions when I put out a call for crazy teacher stories. So let's listen to a few now. Okay, so in high school, I had an English teacher, first period, and every day before class, we would get there a little early before the teacher got there. His first name was Jack, and we would write on the board before he got there something with his name in it uh, that was also you know, something random with, with Jack. So it would be like Jack be nimble or jumping Jack or something. And one day, we were all sitting around waiting for Jack to show up for class, and in the back of the room was a big box and Jack popped out of the box and said, jumping Jack. So yeah, his nickname was Mad Jack. True story. I had a teacher who I'm not sure he was crazy, but something he did made a big impression on me. He was a history teacher, um, a lay person at a Jesuit high school. This is in the 1970s, young guy with a uh, 70s beard. And uh, he did two things I remember. He used the word degration to talk about the terrible things that slaves had done to them um, when he meant degradation. And he would talk over and over again about the degradation that slaves experienced. I remember sitting there thinking that is definitely the wrong word. Um, but one time there had been something in the news about um, gay people or probably homosexuals that they were called then having been attacked. And I remember him saying to the class that he, if he wasn't a teacher, he probably would have gone and joined the people attacking. And uh, I remember going home and telling my parents about this. This is the 1970s after all. And I was pretty impressed that the next day they called the school to complain. They said they thought that was really inappropriate. And I think that made a pretty big impression on me um, that even at that time, they told the school uh, that that sort of comment was not appreciated. Um, and the other thing is I did check and degradation is definitely not a real word. My first year of teaching, the kids were walking all over me. And my mentor teacher told me that I have to make the kids think that I'm crazier than they are. So the next day, when they got really nuts on me, I flipped a couple desks over and threw them across the room to make them think I was crazy. They shut the up, and they were great for the rest of the year. Thanks to everybody who submitted. And again, folks, I always have a prompt up at peepronsays.com on the submit page. And there's a button there that you just click to record your response, and it gets sent right to me. When I when I put out that call for crazy teacher stories, I thought I would hear mostly from, you know, students who had a crazy teacher. Uh, so I was actually surprised and delighted to receive something from an actual crazy teacher. Good times. 
I've done a lot of revisiting my grade school years in this season of the show, and I find that the more time I spend remembering and writing down stories, the more frequently one particular teacher crops up. And I remember thinking back when I was in my middle school years that she was definitely from a different time. But the way this thought formed for me when I was 13 or 14 years old was to simply wonder why she was a teacher at all, because she certainly did not seem to understand kids, nor even like them. Now, I do not know what the retirement age for teachers was back then. I do know that I was only 11 years old when my dad retired, so I was inherently suspicious of anyone who was older than him that was still working. And by the time I was in 8th grade, I had learned to recognize that there was often a vast generation gap stretching between my dad and I, and no amount of hand-wringing would ever bridge it. And I learned to accept that, except that on some issues, there would never be any mutual understanding between my dad and myself, which may be why, as I think back to my middle school years and the should-have-retired-already teacher that I'm writing about today, It's not with any anger or discombobulation or fear or an agenda. It's more about remembering my acceptance of the situation at the time. And as I wrote a lot of the stories in this season of the show, remembering them brings back the super intense emotions I felt at the time, sometimes so fiercely that I'm forced to wonder if anyone in the world ever moves on from anything in their lives. In looking back over 30 years to this teacher, I'm noticing how that acceptance I had in 8th grade has turned into an odd sense of humor, tinted with delightful pangs of disbelief. It helps, I'm sure, that I'm a parent now, and I'm married to a teacher, and in many ways I can now see how 30 or more years of working with kids might push a person over the edge. Which is why, before I share these stories today, which I am endeavoring to do anonymously, even though this teacher passed away some years ago. I want to make sure that I state up front that while these events were bizarre to me at the time, and even more so now in recollection, that they weren't really any big deal in the grand scheme of things. Like most children of the 80s, we all got through it more or less unscathed. I think what I'm trying to say in that weird paragraph is, I'm going to share four weird stories that involve the same teacher, but I don't think that she was necessarily a terrible teacher and I don't want to sully her reputation as a teacher. I just want to say I remember these four weird things happening, and I wanted to share them with you. Is that okay? I think that's enough disclaimer. Let's do this. So I attended a Catholic grade school in the western suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. And the way it worked in your middle school years was that you went to your homeroom and had that teacher all morning for most of your core classes. But in the afternoon, we'd change rooms together as a class for other teachers to be taught other subjects by different teachers, which I suppose was one way the school wanted to prepare us for high school. And I want to refer to the teacher I'm thinking of today as Mrs. O, since she had an O apostrophe Irish last name, but I'm struggling not to simply call her Olsey, which is what all the kids called her behind her back. I don't know where it came from, this nickname. But I guess it's a combination of that O apostrophe and the word old, and for some reason, it's finished off with the whimsical Z, Olzy. I only had her for one class in one year, religion class. And it may be that the odd assignments we completed in her class were entirely due to an equally odd curriculum that the Diocese of Cleveland or the Catholic Church or whomever had put together for religious instruction. Which is to say, we often read poorly wrought morality tales aloud from the textbook, and these were then punctuated with inane activities like putting on skits or singing songs, the very kinds of activities that seem to me are directly 100% at odds with the stance of a shy and insecure middle schooler, which is to say, all middle schoolers with the exception of early breakout Broadway stars and future serial killers. 
I have four stories that I want to share today. Four stories that, try as I might, just didn't fit in with any of the larger narratives I've planned for season one. But they all come together in this episode, at the intersection of middle school and outdated curriculum written by an out-of-touch organization with a hell of an agenda, and delivered by someone about whom, even now, 30 years later and in my memory, still frightens me a bit. These stories are The Song, The Skit, The Hero, and The Job. They are a four-car pile-up of dubious intent that I'm all but certain would never fly today. But before we dive in, I'll just say once more, and for the record, we got through it all just fine, and with these nutty stories to boot. The Song What I remember about the song assignment was how quickly and electrically my whole body froze up as soon as Olsey explained it. We were put in small groups and told to write a church-type song for Easter and then sing it out loud to the entire class. To her credit, and perhaps picking up on the vacuum of future mortification emanating from her class, it was decided that if we wanted to, our group could go out in the hallway and record the song into a tape recorder, and just play it in front of the class. By the way, this was pretty cutting-edge technology for the early 1980s. I was first paired in a group with my friend Joe and Murr, and I think one of the many Burks in our grade. Murr was not Murr's real name, but rather his initials, M, I, and R. But we called him Murr, because middle school. Joe was a pretty bright kid, and in short order, we had banged out what seemed like a fine song about Easter a catchy ditty, both short and to the point. So short was the tune that when we walked up to the teacher's desk and told her we were ready to record the song in the hallway, she doubted us entirely and told us we first had to sing the song for her, right then and there. Okay, so I'm going to sing the song next. And I want you to know, I am right now absolutely feeling the very same trepidation I felt when we had to sing it to Olsey that day at her desk, which we tried to do pretty quietly so that no one in the class would hear us. It went like this. One, two, three, four. His name is Jesus Christ. He hangs upon the cross. He died for our sins, and now we aren't lost. Hey! Now looking back, I think it was that hey that did it. Olsey sat quietly looking at us with that kind of look that very tired people give you when they're not sure if they're being put on. The silence was uncomfortable. Joe spoke up. I know it's a short song, he said, but at the end, I was going to yell, One more time! And we would all sing it again. The rest of us nodded to back him up. This indeed had been the plan. But the teacher said, Give me that. She took the paper we had written our opus on and sent us back to the drawing board, so to speak. And for some reason, I was removed from the group with Joe and Murr and paired up with Craig, who was a decent enough dude, but also only two of us in a group. Really? Craig and I ended up rewriting the words to Billy Idol's Rebel Yell, which was part of our cultural idiom at the time. I know we rewrote every verse, but to this day, I can only remember the refrain, which went, In the midnight hour, pray, pray, pray. With a Jesus yell, pray, pray, pray. Now, for some reason, this song was approved to go into the hall and be recorded. And what I remember very clearly about the recording was that halfway through the first verse, Craig just stopped singing entirely, and I ended up finishing most of the song by myself, with Craig only occasionally jumping in on the pray, pray, pray part. I think he knew the damage that this song was about to do to what tiny shred of middle school dignity either of us had left, and he basically opted out. 
looking at me as I thinly sang the words, with an, I'm out, what are you going to do about it look on his face, that I still see in my mind's eye as clearly as I know all the lyrics of Rebel Yell. On to the skit. This next story convinced me that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people, like me, who feel giving any assignment to middle schoolers that involves them performing a skit constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. The other group is probably serial killers. It's an unprecedented second serial killer joke in this episode, by the way. This is because middle school is the absolute pinnacle of self-doubt, of insecurity, and of fear of anything that draws attention to you. But for some reason, textbook writers love to throw in, perform a skit, as part of what they call extended learning. And for the record, I suspect you're already getting a sense of where this story is heading, and let me just assure you, it will end up in a much weirder place than you can possibly conceive of at this moment. So I know we were studying racism and how our religion thought it was a pretty bad thing. So, you know, way to go, Catholic religion textbook writers. And I'm making a logical guess here, because I can't recall for sure. I think we must have studied the Rosa Parks story somewhere in there. Because when Olsey assigned us the task of creating a skit that showed how to stand up to racism, my group, which was a mix of boys and girls, a fact which just doubled down my insecurities, we chose to set our skit on a bus. This actually seemed like a stroke of genius. We set up a few rows of chairs, two across, and then one chair out front for the bus driver to sit in. I make no excuses for what followed, but please believe me when I say that my whole group was on the same page, and that page was, do as little as possible to get through this god-awful assignment. And making everything just a little bit worse, our group was the first to go, first into the breach. Now, I played a passenger on the bus who sat in the middle row. This was a coup because I only had one line, and it was one that two of my fellow passengers had to say with me at the same time. That line was, Yeah! So now imagine an 8th grade boy wearing our school uniform, which for boys was white golf shirts and blue pants, sitting in the first seat and miming like he was driving the bus. Then he mimed breaking the bus and opening the door. Another student, and I can't remember if it was a boy or girl, but if it was a girl, she was definitely playing a man, got on the bus. Go to the back of the bus, said the bus driver. When she got to the back of the bus, another passenger said, You are not allowed to sit down. Then a third passenger, still not me, said, Hey, let him have a seat. And then me and two other passengers said, Yeah. And scene. Then there was this long pause after we finished. Olsey took off her glasses and let them hang around her neck with the weird beaded chain she kept attached to them. That's it? she asked. We nodded. That's all you had? Our bus driver explained just in case Olsey wasn't connecting the dots by saying, see, he couldn't have a seat, and then um, someone said to let him have a seat. Olsey said, yes, but there was so much more you could have done. And then in quick succession... She fired off these notes, which are still very much etched in my memory. 1. When the bus driver opened the door, he could have made a face like, You stink, or, God, you smell bad. 2. And then one of the passengers could say, What a dirty Indian. And another passenger could say, The only good Indian is a dead Indian. 
Now, we hadn't specified the race of our protagonist, so I remember being surprised that Olsey interpreted him, her, as a Native American. I was still sitting in my seat on the bus while she said all of this, and in charitable hindsight, I want to say that she was probably trying to fault us for just doing the bare minimum and not really selling it with our performance. But my eighth grade self thought that we were in trouble for not being racist enough. And as I sat there, I saw the kids in the other groups frantically scribbling revisions to their scripts. Mercifully, she did not ask us to re-perform our skit to clear her higher bar for portrayal of racists. But I do remember at least two more groups had also set their skits on buses, and that those minorities really got it bad from the rest of the passengers. So you know, once more, good on you, Catholic religion textbook writers of the early 1980s. Racist theater aside, the last two stories are really quick, but I think about them a lot because they're tied together in my mind. Both of these happened during classes where we had to arrange our desks into a big circle, and Olsey sat at one of the desks with us in the circle, and she would ask us questions that I assume were inspired by the text, and she would go around the circle and make each one of us answer. I didn't mind this so much because it gave me time to hear a bunch of the other kids' answers before formulating my own. One time... She asked us to name a hero of ours. I listened and nodded appreciatively as we went around the room and the boys mentioned current or recently former Cleveland Browns and Cleveland Indians. I chose Cleveland shortstop Tom Verizer, who once tossed a ball to me after batting practice at Cleveland Municipal Stadium, and was thus my go-to choice for personal heroes from then on out. I can't remember who the girl said, and I'm legitimately sorry for that, but I was more interested in what Paragon of Cleveland sports each boy would select. Which is why I remember that when we got to a friend of mine named Mickey, who was one of the last kids to go, he said, My dad. And then Olsey really let the rest of us have it. Yes, she said, all of you, of course it's your dad, of course it's your mom. They have done everything for you. What have these athletes done for you? Someone tell me. Anyone? They are not your heroes. And I thought, It's a trap! Of course. I was the only kid in class whose dad was in World War II. I totally should have said him. Instead, like most of the boys, except Mickey, I looked down at my desktop in the hopes that someone had scratched an answer in the wood. Or at least a warning about future gotchas like this. Because we didn't know that she meant that kind of hero. By which I mean the kind of hero that you just say during religion class so you can move on to the next kid. Around the circle, one more time, on another day perhaps, another class. This time, we were asked what we wanted to do when we grew up. It seemed like we were always getting asked this question during grade school. We even had a career day when you were allowed to dress as your future career, and most of us chose tennis player. Not because we like tennis. I don't remember actually ever playing tennis or even talking to anyone about tennis. I can't even remember saying the word tennis. But instead, the tennis player costume allowed us to wear sneakers and shorts. Some kids even brought rackets to complete the look. But the teachers made them put them in the lockers until it was time to go home. Now it seemed that the boys, at least the ones who had gotten burnt on that whole personal hero thing, had learned their lesson. Nobody was offering up running back or shortstop as future professions. Instead, we were all to be doctors or scientists or businessmen. One of the first girls to answer this question, I'll call T, whom I remember as both always kind to me and shorter than me, the latter of which was kind of an accomplishment back then. 
I remember that she said she wanted to be an attorney. I remember it because I was just putting together that attorney and lawyer were the same thing, and I thought attorney sounded better. So good on you, T, for choosing it. You don't want to be an attorney, Olsey snapped. There are plenty of attorneys. Everywhere you look, there are attorneys. You know who else wanted to be an attorney? Me. And I'm a teacher. It's a trap! There's so much to unpack in this exchange, which may be why I think of it so often. There was the fallen look on T's face, the inconceivable idea of Olsey being something other than a grouchy teacher, then the idea that there were apparently lawyers hiding under every nook and cranny. What? Where? Really? Oh, my head. And I want to admit to you that for years and years afterwards, I thought of this exchange as the textbook definition of what it means to crush someone's dreams. And I thought of it like that in those pure black and white terms. But as I wrote this episode and did some research, I learned from this teacher's obituary that she had indeed gone on to law school after college. But then World War II broke out, and she served in the Red Cross, met her husband, moved to Cleveland after the war, raised a family, and became a teacher. All of which gives me so much more context now, 30 years after the fact, that I've begun to find in the exchange just a great sadness on both sides, for T and for my teacher, who wanted once to be a lawyer, until duty called and life happened. I'm pretty sure that I just said businessman when it came around to me, which seemed generic and safe enough, the kind of answer you give in religion class so that you can just move on. I can assure you no one else ventured to offer a career in the legal profession after the beatdown T had received. Now I often wonder why, looking back over 30 years, these two specific around the circles remain lodged so clearly in my memory. As an adult, I can see that Olsey may have been a good teacher in her time, maybe even a great one but we were the class that caught her at the tail end of it, the last year or two before retirement, when she was done with the bullshit. She had no time for empathy, and when she asked us our opinion on things like heroes and careers, she bypassed responses like positive reinforcement and all such related voodoo, and instead chose to cut to the chase. Her chase, to be sure, but a chase nonetheless. At the time, I learned to be suspicious of her motives whenever she asked for our opinion of something. I saw each around the circle as a setup for her, a jilted lawyer with a penchant for racist theater, to explain why we were wrong. This, oddly enough, describes to a T how my entire relationship with Catholicism has gone in my life, and I assume was pretty much the prime directive for the people writing religion textbooks for the Catholic Church in the early 1980s, most of which, I believe, could easily have been titled why you are wrong. I don't know what became of T to this day, but I've always secretly hoped she became an attorney. I don't want to look her up and find out, though. I'm not sure I'm up for the truth. One last note as I close out these middle school stories, and it's something I've noticed in my own kids as they traverse these three years. It's about the way kids at this age will sometimes repeat things that they've heard, just to test them out and see how grown-ups might react. They may, or more likely, may not even agree with or understand what they're repeating back. The bigger goal seems to be to practice communication in the upcoming grown-up world, to feel like a grown-up for an exchange or two. Because I remember my dad asking me around this time to think about going to law school and becoming an attorney. There are too many attorneys already, Dad, I repeated, 
feeling very grown up about it. They're hiding under every nook and cranny. My dad took this in for a moment, and then he said, That might be true, which honestly shocked me. But he went on, But there's always room for another good one. No matter what you choose to do, remember that. There's always room for a good one. This may be the most supportive thing he ever shared with me, and my eyes are tearing up as I write this at Starbucks some 30 years later. I repeat this line to my kids often, and it's not because I'm trying it out, but rather because it feels so completely and wholesomely true to me. He never mentioned law school again, and years later, when I switched my major to English and said I wanted to become a writer, he just nodded along and said, We need good writers. Everyone needs good writers. There's so few of them anymore. And I felt the truth of that as well, for the vast distance that often sat between our generations as I grew up. My dad always showed up at just the right time to share a brief word or two of quiet certainty. Just like the hero always does. Pete Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Hake and Kevin Davison. And the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band, Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. surfer but i have one major problem i have this huge fear of sharks ever since i saw jaws i really can't get in water um above my waist which really is a, a hindrance when you try to surf